you know, everyone has a different stance on who they think Jesus is. What makes the Christian faith unique from pretty much every other religion out there is our understanding of the person of Jesus. The Jewish carpenter from Nazareth, um, born in Bethlehem, you know, crucified, arrested um, under Pontius Pilate, hung on a cross, um, and laid in a tomb. You know, our understanding of what we believe and what I know is factually true is that Jesus is resurrected. And so the Christian faith is one that's built on Jesus, not just being Savior, not just being resurrected, but actually being God in the flesh, being God in the flesh. And before I get into today, okay, we're going to talk about 30 reasons, like not just logical, philosophical reasons, but biblically grounded reasons. Like I'm going to show you from the scripture what it says. There's no way to argue this. What makes the Christian faith different is that we believe Jesus is God in the flesh because scripture teaches that from page one all the way to the end of the narrative. Um, Jesus is clearly God in the flesh. Now, there's many ways that people make sense of that, but at the end of the day, if you believe that he is divine, um, that he really is the eternally existent one, meaning he has no beginning, he has no end, uh, that's good, because that's what scripture teaches. And so, I'm not here to blow any religion out of the water or make any statement against people. All we're gonna do is examine the truth. And the best way for you to learn how to recognize falsehood and to stay away from lies is to study the truth. And so um, we're going to look at 30 plus reasons why scripture biblically teaches uh, that Jesus is God in the flesh. Let me take you to Colossians chapter 1. Make sure my screen is scrolling. It is not. Classic. Classic, classic. Ha! Ah, yes. I checked it this time, guys. Yes, yes, yes. All right, we're in Colossians chapter 1. Um, should I start with this? Yes. Before we look at the 30 reasons, let me tell you why this is important. Biblically speaking, the penalty for man's sin, for humanity's crime, is the just wrath of God against that sin and darkness. Sin is evil. It's a disease. Like every human being is plagued with this disease called evil, sin. Rebellion, unbelief, uh, autonomy, not wanting God, however you define it, missing the mark, rejecting his law, falling short of his standard. We're all plagued with that. There's no way for an imperfect being to become or be perfect or produce perfect results. It's not possible. Um... So because the consequence for our evil is separation from God for eternity, then by definition, our consequence is in fact infinite um, because of the fact that our transgression is against an infinite God. Our sin, our rebellion, our heinous crime, our violent crime against God and his word and his standard and his kingdom and his love, it, that it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a crime against an infinite God. And so the just penalty is infinite, never-ending separation from that God. And there's no way to bridge that gap. The second thing you have to understand about human evil is that it exists at the beginning, you know, Adam and Eve's fall, um, all the way to the end of time. There's a, there's a huge timeline of sin. 
Sin doesn't just occur at certain pockets of, of human history or in certain moments or in certain seasons. Sin exists pretty much at the start from the fall all the way till now and until time stops ticking. However, God does that. Sin is itself existing at pretty much every point in human history. Okay, so take those two things into consideration. What we have to understand is that therefore the, the just and fair righteous payment for humanity's sin has to be able to atone for sin all across human history. Meaning, whatever that sacrifice is, it has to touch every single moment of human history where sin is committed in order to effectively be the payment for that justly. Number two, the, the, the payment itself for sin and the, the payment for the debt we've accrued, it has to be itself infinite in order to actually uh, handle the actual punishment for humanity's sin, which is by nature infinite and endless, that, that being or that sacrifice has to himself or itself be endless. And so this is why Jesus being God in the flesh uh, is extremely, extremely necessary um, for salvation. It's not possible for someone to be forgiven of their sin, be right with God, eternally secure, have all their debt paid for, be a new creation without a sin payment being infinite and eternal. That's exactly who Jesus is. And those two attributes, like rightly defining a being and not a concept or a philosophical idea, those two concepts, infinite and eternal, are only true of God. God himself is the one who has um, no beginning and no end. He's the eternally existent one. He actually inhabits eternity. Time is a product of God. God is not confined to time. Um, and so it's so important to understand that yet Jesus cannot just be a mere human representative in our likeness. That, that's not sufficient. He can't cover all of humanity's sin as one being that has an origin point and has an end point. He can't effectively do that. And if he himself is not infinite and can't absorb the infinite, essentially, consequence for humanity's sin, then, uh, then we're not forgiven. But he is. He is infinite. He is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He exists at every point in human history where sin is committed so he can effectively pay for that. This is why Jesus has to be God in the flesh. Otherwise, I don't think we understand the logistics of, of what we really need to have done for us. So, reason number one. With all that on the table, I don't just want to tell you what the scripture says. I, I want to tell you why it's so important that we serve a God and that God has actually come down in human flesh, paid his human life for us as the eternally existent, infinite God who can handle his own, the just penalty for our sins, take away human evil. Evil is destroyed in the body of Christ, right? It's, it's, it's um, Romans 8 says, sin was condemned in the flesh of Jesus. So, so now we worship and praise the God who does that. Reason number one why Jesus is God in scripture is because of Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Jesus actually pre-exists all things. Now, depending on how you see time and that concept, um, 
depending on how you understand time, is it created, is it infinite? Um, I believe that time has a, has a starting point. Um, but Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, it says, By him, him being Jesus, he being the image of the invisible God, the beloved son, just so we're not like, you know, already off on a bad start. Him is Jesus. And by him, all things were created. All things, not most things, not some things. In heaven, just to be clear, everything in heaven that was created apart from God, the, the only being and thing that is uncreated is God himself. He is the uncaused cause. He is the unmoved mover, right? He's the one that initiates everything. And so everything that follows God is created, but God himself is not. So by him, all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things. To be clear, all things were created through him and for him. He's not only the origin point of all things, he's the reason and the purpose for all things. He is before all things. In case you're wondering, well, it doesn't mean like Jesus himself isn't created and he isn't bound by time. If you believe that time started ticking, uh, or at least you believe in, in time as being a product of God, then time has an origin point. Time was created by God. He's not bound by it. He is actually before all things, including time itself. Not just time, not just matter, not just space. He, he, he's before all things. The invisible things you and I don't have the understanding or the concepts for. The heavenly things that by, by which we have no understanding of. He's before it all. In him, all things hold together. That doesn't sound like a mere human being who just kind of was created through the Virgin Mary and was born. And look, a perfect person who's going to pay for sin. This is someone who actually effectively holds all things together. Here's why. Because he pre-exists all things. He, has the, he was there before everything existed. Therefore, he has the authority, the ability, and the power to actually hold it all, to sustain it. He holds it up. He holds it all together. He makes sure things don't fall in and on, on itself. He holds the entire world and everything in creation together. So to be clear, um, everything is made through him. And if you don't like that, if you don't really think that's true, John chapter 1 verse 3 will go on to clarify. All things were made through him. And this is the word. Jesus is the word per Revelation um, uh, chapter 22, I think. Probably wrong. But either way, the word is Jesus. He's with God and he is God, right? And all things are made through him. Just so you are very clear, without him, nothing... Uh, was not anything made that was made. Meaning everything that is made is not made without him. Okay, so go back to Colossians chapter 1. It says, he's before all things, in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church, so that in everything he might be preeminent. And we'll get to the part where he's the fullness of God, okay? That's, <laughs> that's like reason number something, okay? But not, not right now. The point that I want to make is, Jesus can't be restricted by time because he himself pre-exists it. Which means he already has an attribute that only God has, which is to be timeless and uncreated. Jesus can't be a created being and you go, why? 
Because if we're going to work with the understanding that time has a beginning and God actually ticked time into existence or whatever, or started the clock, then you can't have anything created without an origin point and a way to measure that origin point. Time measures the beginning of something. Time measures the life of something. It measures how long something has existed. So if Jesus does not have a beginning, um, because there's no time to effectively measure him having a beginning, um, then he himself already has the quality of God that only God has, which is to be timeless and uncreated. In other words, time has to exist for something to be created. Um, if Jesus precedes time because he created time or ticked it into existence, he, he himself cannot be created like the Jehovah's Witness like to say he is. Right? Something can't have a beginning without having time to effectively measure and determine that beginning. So Jesus is not bound by time. Only created things are bound by time. Uncreated and timeless, those two attributes belong only to divinity, deity, that which is not bound by what we are. Okay, so Jesus is actually excluded from all things, from all uh, creatures. Go to Revelation chapter 5, verse 13. Uh, John, the apostle, the visionary, he says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing, honor, glory, and might forever and ever. Meaning every creature, every creature in every location, under the earth, in heaven, on the earth, um, is worshiping the son who is called the lamb here and the one who sits on the throne, the father. So this, this already puts Jesus in a completely different category than creation. He's excluded from created things. You can't say, well, all things that are created except for Jesus being the, cre no, Jesus isn't created because he's not lumped into the category of created things. He's actually the effective means by which everything, everything is created. Okay, so, so that's reason number one. That's reason number one. Reason number two, okay, is that Jesus is actually worshipped. And we have, um, it's crazy, we have 60, 63, 64 reasons total why biblical, like, the Bible like, teaches Jesus is God in the flesh. Um, we're on number two. Today we're looking at 30. Wednesday we'll look at the remaining 30-ish. Um, but number two, Jesus is actually worshipped as God. So it's one thing for an angel to be worshipped. They often go, no, don't worship us. And we'll get to that. Revelation 19.10, Acts 10.25-26. Okay, But Jesus is worshipped and he doesn't reject it. We can establish this. In the Old Testament, the only one who rightly deserves and honors worship, right? That loyalty as the creation is, 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 is looking to the, the uncreated. The only one worthy of worship is God. Exodus 34, 14, Matthew 4, 10, Acts 10, 26, Revelation 19, 10, and Acts 14, 13 through 15 make this clear. 
We're not arguing that God alone is the one worthy of worship. We, uh, we agree on that if you read the Bible. So if Jesus uh, is, is not God, hypothetically, and he's receiving worship wrongfully and robbing God of his worship, then suddenly Jesus is not a good prophet in the eyes of, you know, the Muslims. He's not a good servant in the eyes of the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. In other words, he, he can't be sent from God. He's robbing God of his rightful glory. But if Jesus is God in the flesh, then he does rightly deserve worship. So let me show you that in Revelation 19.10, angels are, are, are given worship and they reject it. You know, Galatians says, do not worship angels. So Revelation 19.10, um, John falls at the feet of this angel to worship him, but he goes, you must not do that. That's a big no-no. He's looking back at God. I didn't tell him to do this. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers. Okay? So there's, hey, don't worship me. Acts 10, 25 through 26. Same idea. Angelic beings, those who are created spiritual messengers or workers of God who, you know, come from the heavenly realms, they are created and do not deserve worship. Acts 10, Peter enters, um, and here we see that, you know, men also prevent worship. So not only do angels prevent worship, and Galatians explicitly teaches, and Scripture teaches, don't bow down to any other spiritual being but the Lord God. Um, but men are not to be worshipped. Humanity is not to be worshipped. When Peter entered into the house of Cornelius, Cornelius worshipped him. Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up, I am a man, just like you. <laughs> So what you're going to see is fundamentally different from Jesus is that um, unlike created spiritual beings or created earthly beings, Jesus is given worship and he rightly receives it. He doesn't reject it. Um, in the very beginning of his, him coming into the world through the Virgin Mary, um, we have the wise men, I believe, sent by Herod. They found Jesus. Um, they go to the child, and when they saw the star, you know, resting over the place where Jesus was, they got pumped. Verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and guess what they do? This is how Matthew starts off his gospel. Like, the, the introduction to Jesus' life is that wise men from the east are worshiping him. And Matthew doesn't say, and that was wrong. And Matthew doesn't add, you know what, they shouldn't have done that. And no one else in the narrative goes, hey, don't bow down to a baby. That's friggin' weird. Jesus, as a, as a child, as a baby, is rightly receiving the worship due to him. Matthew 28, 17, you're going to see, um, and they off, offer him gifts. They're looking to him not just as a king that deserves gifts, but as obviously divine, deserving worship. Now, in most pagan minds and religions, you would see the king as essentially the god of your people. Um, so, it would make sense. Matthew 28, 17, when Jesus is about to shoot off into heaven, when they saw him, the disciples, they worshipped him. Is that clear enough? That the apostles worshipped Jesus as the Messiah, their rabbi? This is post-resurrection, but some doubted. So listen, listen to what Matthew does. He, he juxtaposes doubt 
with worship. The people who worship, the, the apostles who are present that worship, they don't doubt who Christ is. In other words, they see him properly. Those who doubt, eh, they're still skeptical on who he is, so it doesn't seem to be worship involved. Or maybe those who are just physically bowing down, but their heart is not reverentially worshiping, you know, they're doubting. Either way, doubting is juxtaposed with worshiping. And Jesus comes and he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Does he reject worship? Does he say, don't do that, guys, I'm created. I'm just here to be a human representative. No, he is a human representative. That's not all he is. Hebrews 1.6. Um, this is the author of Hebrews giving us commentary on the Psalms by ex expanding on what the Psalms are really trying to get us to see which is Jesus. And so his whole argument here in the first chapter of Hebrews is, look, Jesus is way superior to angels. The name he has is far better than theirs. I mean, did God ever tell the angels, you are my son, today I've begotten you? No. He only said that to his, his own son. Who, who did, what angels did God say, I'll be to him a father, he'll be to me a son? None. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, this is speaking of rank and status, okay, not creation. Let all God's angels worship him. He says to the angels, to God's angels, his own angels, worship the son. God, you're the only one deserving of worship. Yep. Exactly. I don't understand. You're supposed to see that there is supposed to be for us this, um, this mystery where we don't totally, we can't, we can't totally make sense of the divine being of, of God who made everything. There are categories, there are, there's analogies, there are helpful ways to understand, but we can't fully understand what it means that God is, that the son is distinct from the father, yet God, or that the father is God, right? Totally God, yet distinct from the son. There are these categories in scriptures and the father actually tells the son or the angels to worship his son. Interesting. Verse eight, this is what he says of the son. This is God speaking, by the way, in case you're not um, seeing it. This is God speaking of his son. Because remember, what's being contrasted here is what did God ever say uh, or did God ever say anything like this to the angels? And the answer is no. He's only said these things about his son. So God is speaking of his son. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Hmm. The father referring to the son is God. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God... Your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, think of Lord as more of a proper name than God. Uh, it's helpful to think of God as just a title. I know that that might mess with some of your cultural upbringing, but the, the proper name of the true God, which is a title or position, is the Lord. I am that I am. Um, the divine name. He's revealed himself, I am the Lord. 
And so speaking of him properly, you Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. This is the father speaking to the son. Just to go back, nothing has changed. The father is still speaking of the son. And you Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. That makes sense with Colossians 1. That by him all things were created. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed. And he's quoting here the Psalms, Psalm 102 specifically right here. Psalm 102, 25 and 27. You are the same and your years will have no end. Interesting. So not only do the disciples worship Jesus, and the wise men in the very beginning of Jesus' human life worship Jesus. God explicitly tells the angels, worship my son. He's deserving of worship. But God, you alone are. Exactly. Exactly. He's the extension of me. He's the eternal word emanating from the Father. Matthew 14, 33, it says, those in the boat worshipped him. This is when Jesus calms the storm. Okay. And Jesus doesn't say, stop it. No, bad Peter, you know better. Read your Hebrew Bible. He goes, yep, nothing else. Just they worship him and say, you're the son of God. Uh, Matthew 28, 9, um, Jesus is resurrected. Um, and he meets, who is he meeting? He's having a meet and greet at this local conference. Now he's meeting Mary and... Um, she went to the tomb, and Jesus met them, I think the women, and says, greetings. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Um, and this is, this is not just like, Lord, we are singing to you. This is the, the worship you give to God to, to um, express your loyal love. This is the best way I can think to explain it. Worship is the expression of one's loyal love and affection and adoration for um, categorically different than like loving a, a cup of hot chocolate, but loving God as creator, as savior, as God, as the one who rightly deserves my, my praise and adoration. And um, then Jesus said, don't be afraid. He didn't say, stop worshiping me. Um, interesting, right? Luke 24, 52. How many times do we need to see it before? I mean, we could just stop here. We could. We could just end this whole debate right now. Luke 24, 52. Guess what? They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So Jesus blesses them on the Mount of Olives and um, the disciples. And then he, he yeets up into heaven and they worshipped him and went to Jerusalem blessing God. I want you to see the importance between these, like the, the connection between these two statements. It's as if Luke the historian wants you to see blessing God as being the same thing as worshiping the sun. They're not different. They're essentially the same thing. Um, John 9 38, we have the blind man healed. Uh, Lord, Jesus said to him, hey, or let's back it up. Jesus finds a man that he healed. Uh, and he goes, do you believe in the son of man? The blind man who is now seeing goes, who is he? I, I want to believe in him. Jesus goes, 
It's me, buddy. It's the one who's speaking to you. I do believe, and he worshiped him. You can go and look at the Greek word for worship and try and, and Greek your way around this. You ain't getting around it. Luke 19, 37 through 40. Okay. We have Jesus walking into Jerusalem. They think it's a coronation, but it's actually going to be his crucifixion. They're welcoming the king in their minds, and then they're going to turn around and say crucify him. But um, he's coming down from the Mount of Olives. whole multitude of his disciples are rejoicing, praising God. Going, look at all these mighty works we've seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? Um, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, hey, rebuke your disciples. This is not good. He answered, well, if these are silent, the stones would cry out. So I want you to see that Jesus rightly deserves worship. He doesn't see himself as uh, not uh, rightly deserving. Even though he assumed a humble position and stuff, him being worshipped, it's a right thing to do. He doesn't say it's wrong. Scriptures don't say it's wrong. God doesn't say, God actually says the opposite. Worship my son to the angels too. So um, that's reason number two is that Jesus is worship. We're going 30 minutes and we're two reasons in. Good God help me. Reason number three, Jesus is prayed to as God. Did you know that Jesus is actually prayed to? The next time someone tells you that uh, <laughs> Jesus was never prayed to though, Guys, we're, we have 60-something of these, and we're only, this is number three. So you can see why I am so utterly convinced that Jesus is God in the flesh. But nonetheless, you can take them to Acts 7. Acts 7, Stephen, the first martyr, is essentially being welcomed into heaven. Uh, he's being stoned by the rebellious, sinful, unbelieving religious leaders. And they're stoning him, and he calls out. This is not a Hail Mary. This is not a hopeful someone's going to catch this. This is a calling out. In the Old Testament, there's a lot of call upon the Lord. Call out to the Lord. It's, it's another way of saying pray. Because prayer is simply what? Talking to God with intention and purpose according to his word as his beloved children. Stephen's doing that. But who's he talking to? He says, Lord Jesus now, I know he's mediator. I know he's at the right hand of the Father. I know he's, he's established a new covenant. I know Jesus is, is, has paved the way for us to go into the presence of the Father. But why are you calling out to Jesus, buddy? Is he going to hear you? Apparently. He says, receive my spirit. And guess what? This is after he says, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. What does Stephen see? He sees Jesus at the right hand of God. And he cries out, not just seeing, but knowing that he hears, he cries out to who? To receive his spirit. God? More specifically, he calls out to the Son. In Acts chapter 9, we have um, the Lord appear to Ananias, Ananias, annihilation, 
there was a disciple at Damascus. This is after uh, Saul, on the road to Damascus, gets blinded. And he's kind of waiting in limbo for someone to help. Well, God's about to send a man named Ananias to go help Saul. And so the Lord says in a vision to Ananias, can we establish who's speaking here? Is it an angel? Is it a messenger? Is it Gabriel? Is it Michael? No, it says the Lord. Directly in a vision to Ananias. You're going to notice in Acts, there's a lot of different ways God speaks to his people. By his spirit, through the apostles, through the prophets, through dreams, through visions, him directly. There's so many ways. Through his son. So the Lord says in a vision to Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said, hey, rise and go. Essentially, he's going to go, um, I got Saul waiting for you. Ananias goes, ah, I've heard about Saul. But the Lord said, hey, he's a chosen instrument of mine. So whoever's talking to Ananias has the authority and the power to choose Saul as an instrument to carry his name. You're supposed to think about God choosing the nation of Israel to carry his name. Saul's a part of that now, as he's going to be a part of the church. I will show him how much he'll suffer. So watch, watch what happens. Ananias departed, entered the house, finds Saul, lays his hands on him, and he said, Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road, right? He sent me. He sent me. So we have the Lord Jesus, okay, appearing not just to Saul on the road to Damascus, but also to Ananias in another place. And he goes, go find Saul. He's my guy. And Ananias is like, your guy's murdering people. Yeah, I'm going to change him. Okay. So he goes, the Lord Jesus actually sent me so you can be filled with the Spirit. Who is Ananias crediting the vision to? The Lord Jesus. So who's the one talking to Ananias in a vision? The Lord Jesus. What's going on here? Direct line of communication, the same way Stephen cries out to Jesus, the same way in John 14 through 16, it talks about praying in the name of Jesus, but also directly to him, um, which we could go there, but I don't know why we would have to. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, I'm going to take you here. Okay. Okay. Look what it says. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Jesus, called to be saints, with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus. In every place, they're calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. Specifically saints. Historically, in the Old Testament, we're actually told to call upon the name of the Lord. Um, for instance, in the Old Testament, go read Genesis 4.26, Genesis 12.8, Genesis 26.25. Those are all instances of Abraham and I believe Isaac and Jacob as well. They're calling on the name of Yahweh. It was, it was to worship God. It was to talk to him, seek his favor, offer a sacrifice. Um, first, first Chronicles 16, 8, same idea. Now in the New Testament, we see same idea calling on the name, but it's Jesus. Romans 10 says there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all. 
bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a nuts hot in here. Sorry. That's another way of saying, uh, not just finding refuge in the name for salvation and asking for forgiveness in that name, but actually calling upon the name of Jesus in, in a prayerful way. I don't know how else you can get around it. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So you are calling on the name of Jesus to save, to protect, to forgive, to redeem, but it is in the form of what? Prayer. God, calling on your name. How can they call on him in whom they have not believed? Right, so belief precedes the call. Hmm? Isn't that interesting? Never saw it before. The person who believes is going to call on him in whom they believed. So the effective calling, God, I believe, that's just an expression of the already present faith in your heart. It's not like calling seals it, it's just that's the expression of your already uh, believing heart. Acts 9.21, um, we could hang around here all day, all day. Acts 9.21, all who heard him were amazed. This is uh, Saul in the synagogues preaching Christ. All who heard him were amazed and said, isn't this, isn't this the guy who like, destroyed Christians? Locked them up in Jerusalem? Those who called on this name? Those who called on this name? Notice how believers are referred to as those who call on the name of who? The Lord, specifically Jesus. It's as if the Old Testament uh, category of calling on the name of the God of Israel has taken a new form in the New Testament of calling on the name of Jesus. And they're not different. It's just a clarified understanding of what that really means. 1 Corinthians 1-2, again, we read that. Acts 22-16, um, Paul recalls the moment he was knocked down. Um, he heard a voice from heaven. And... Ananias comes and he goes, hey, Saul, get baptized, wash away your sins, and call on his name. Revelation 22.20. So I want you to see that the calling on the name is a form of prayer. Um, I don't know what else you would think it is because belief in the gospel, in the name, precedes calling on the name which means the calling is something I do as an expression of the faith I have. What would you say calling is? Just making a public proclamation? No, you're calling on the name of Jesus, looking to him. It's a, in other words, your Revelation 22 verse 20 is kind of what it looks like. He who testifies to these is John ending the revelation of Jesus, <clears throat> his revelation. Surely I'm coming soon is what Jesus says. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This seems to be the desire, the heartbeat, and even the prayer of John and those who follow Jesus, anyone else who does. The prayer, the desire is come, Lord Jesus. Um, trying to think, where else should I go? I could show you like Acts 23, 11. Paul's in the middle of what's about to be a shipwreck. And uh, the Lord comes to him, Jesus, and goes, hey, take courage. You got to testify of me. 
there's an interaction, there's a communication going on. Um, <clears throat> I can take you to John 14, but I just want you to see that Jesus is indeed prayed to as God. You call on his name. Um, I don't think there's any way to get around it, but some people will try. None of these exactly, uh, if, to disprove either of them, any of these, wouldn't uh, be to take away from any of the others. So if you're like, well, the scripture isn't saying to pray to Jesus, go, to, go read John 14 through 16. I forgot to note that. But even if you, you, you come to the conclusion, well, scripture doesn't say to pray to Jesus, that doesn't make him not God in the other 65 different ways scripture communicates it. Does that make sense? So you can have this. I don't really care. My, my entire theology and foundation doesn't hang on this idea. It's just supplementary that we, we see, it, even in early church accounts, um, church fathers account for uh, Jesus or the apostles uh, singing to, worshiping, praying um, to Jesus. Number four, and I should have come prepared with the actual sources, but I did not. So I could be pulling that out of my butt. Go research. Reason number four, Jesus is God is because he actually created the universe alongside the Father. Now, these are going to get a lot faster. Like, there's two verses for each of these, so we're going to pump them out. I would encourage you to take notes, you little apologists, you, whoever you are. Reason number four, Jesus actually creates the universe alongside the Father. We already saw in John 1, 3, all things are made through him. Now, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, there's a similar statement, just like Colossians chapter 1, 16 through 18. But 1 Corinthians 8, 6 it says, for us, there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things, right? From whom are all things, and for whom we exist. Interesting. Colossians doesn't deny that, but specifically slots Jesus in there instead of the Father. Almost as if you're supposed to see our allegiance as being to both, or our dedication, our, our reason for existing being for, for both the Son and the Father. And there's one Lord Jesus through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Um, where is it? Acts will talk about in, in him we move and have our being. Um, same idea, which is that, hey, all things come into existence um, by the Father and the Son's uh, partnership work because Jesus is the, the word that emanates from the Father. And when you see Genesis, uh, God said, let there be light. It seems like Jesus is, as the word, um, part of that creation process. Uh, reason number five, Jesus actually sustains the universe. Now we saw this in Colossians 1.17. He's before all things, in him all things hold together. Hebrews chapter one, three, uh, chapter one verse three is another good verse to use. What the heck? Um, it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. We'll come back to this. Um, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Who is this? Is this the father or the son? This is the son. As the radiance of God's glory unto the glory of the father, he actually upholds the universe. How many of you guys are upholding anything? I mean, straight facts. None of us are truly upholding anything definitively. I can try, I can attempt, but my labor can fall short. It can result in things not being held together, not being sustained. Uh, with the word of God's power, he's different. He actually maintains absolutely 
that nothing will fall apart unless he says so. So what, what he's upholding, there's no way he can fall apart unless he decides, you know what, I'm gonna let this implode. So he sustains the universe. Uh, reason number six, Jesus is actually the exact imprint of God's nature, which is right here. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And you go, oh, we already explored that in, a, in a, the first episode. And he's the exact imprint. Like when a king is signing a letter or making a decree, he would sign it with his signet ring. And it would leave the imprint of his authority in his very, hey, this is, you know, the actual uh, friggin' ring, signet ring would leave the exact imprint of it on the piece of paper or whatever it is that he's, he's authorizing or decreeing. Um, that's the idea. The word imprint here literally means impression, uh, image, perfect representation, not a shadow, not, a, not a, an outline, um, but the actual substance. Um, the word is, is not only referring to character or persona, but nature and substance, okay? So he's the imprint, the exact imprint of God's nature. Now the word nature refers to the substantial quality of a thing, not just the likeness of something. So like, here's how it goes. We're made in the image of God. You're going to see in Colossians, Jesus is the image of God, which is different. So this word right here doesn't just refer to outward form or presentation or representation. It's referring to essence, the actual inward reality of a thing is he's exactly the imprint of God. That's not true of anything or anyone else. Go scour the scriptures. You ain't going to find anything. Okay. Reason number eight, Jesus is actually God alongside the Father. Now, we explored this in depth the last episode, the angel of God and the word of God. Let me know in the comments if that helped you, what you liked about it. If you're like, yeah, that was pretty dope, let me know because I like knowing when something is helpful because um, maybe in, in the future we can, we can go and turn that into something. Um, but we talked about that. I'm just going to... John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. How are you with someone, yet that's someone at the same time? Well, remember God being a, a title, a position, more than a personal name. That's helpful to understand. So Jesus having that same equal authority, title, position as the only true living God alongside the Father, which is the, the, the complexity of His nature, man. It's the fact that we see God as being one, but it's a compound unity. Adam and Eve, the two become one, right? Uh, the body of Christ, many members but one. We have all these different ideas of many but one. So Jesus is God, yet alongside God. He's in the beginning with God, and all things are made through him, and without him wasn't anything made that was made. Now go down to verse 18. This is interesting. No one has ever seen God. Well, yeah, Exodus 33, 20 tells us that, right? Mo Moses wanted to. God's like, <laughs> you're so cute. No, you can't. But I'll let you see the chain of my robe. Let me tuck you in this little rock, little fella. So no one's ever seen God, right? The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, you can try and do Greek gymnastics around this and go, oh, you know, God is referring to uh, my friend, the text says what it says, even in the Greek. No one has ever seen God. 
But John goes on to clarify that in some ways, and this is what Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When you see Jesus, you are seeing God in a way that you can actually handle. Does that not match up perfectly with the angel or the presence of God in the Old Testament and the word of God? People seeing the human expression of that, being able to handle seeing God, this is Jesus, okay? He's called veiled glory. His humanity veiled, hid his glory so that we could behold him. But he's also called the only God at the Father's side. So I don't know how those who believe that Jesus is the Father, I'm talking to you, how do you get around this? When you say that Jesus is the Father, or the Father is Jesus, how do you get around these statements where, you know, gospel authors like John will say, yeah, he's at the Father's side. Or he's at the right hand of the Father, Stephen. Or he's, you know, um, he's God yet with God. How are you with yourself? So this is why I think it's helpful to understand Jesus is indeed distinct from the Father, but they are indeed both communicated as divine, as uncreated, eternally existent. Um, so, it's cool. No one has ever seen God. You're supposed to go, well, how can we see him? Jesus will reveal him to you. Uh, which doesn't, there's so many extremes you could take with that. Reason number nine, Jesus is the image of God. Now, for those that wrongly call humanity the image of God, this is for you. We are not the image of God, <laughs> to be very clear. I can take you back to Genesis. The language used is we are made in the image of God. In other words, you're supposed to see Jesus here as the one in whose likeness we're fashioned after. Since he is the image and we're made in that image, then our likeness is supposed to be in imitation of the Son who is the image of the Father. If I lost you, I lost you. Jesus is the image, for those who say, well, it says he, talking about the beloved Son, you knucklehead. He, the beloved Son, right here, is the image of the invisible God. Remember we talked about in the Old Testament, the angel of God's presence, the visible Yahweh versus the invisible Yahweh, uh, the invisible presence of God versus the visible presence of God. Jesus is supposed to, you're supposed to see him slotted in that category that the Old Testament creates for like the, the visible presence of God versus the invisible. He's the visible presence of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now this word right here, we'll tackle in about two episodes. This confuses the crap out of people. It just refers to rank or status within a family, okay? For by him all things were created. So you're supposed to see Jesus as the image, so closely connected to the Father. Like when you look in a mirror and you see the image of yourself, that's what Jesus is to the Father, but even closer in relationship, even tighter, even more accurate than my reflection is of myself. So much so that by him all things are created. When Hebrews says, you know, the Father created all things. And Jesus is before all things in verse 17. So, you know, go down to Colossians 2 verse 2. Um, why did I have this written down? 
Ah, here it is. Uh, Paul goes, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Uh, that their hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now watch. The whole, the, the culmination, the substance of the scriptures and the mystery of God defined is Jesus. In whom? In who? In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay? I don't know why I had that in there. Both of the Father and of Christ. Mystery of God. Of God's mystery, which is Christ. Why did I have this written down? There's a reason. Uh, remember, you dummy. That big, dumb 30-year-old brain of yours. Think. Think. Pooh bear, think. I must do my stoutness exercises to remember. Reason number 10. I'll come back to this. There's a reason I brought up Colossians 2.2. 2. Reason number 10. The fullness of divinity dwells within Jesus. Colossians 1.19 to go up. We're going to stay in this book. In him. Who's him? The son. He's the image of the invisible God. We're talking about Jesus. In him all the fullness of God. The majority of God, the 98% of God, the, the, a portion of God, it says the absolute fullness of God is in who? Is in who? In him. Was pleased to dwell. Tabernacle among us. God among his people. Emmanuel, God with us. Through him to reconcile to himself all things. The Father reconciling through the Son to himself on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus' cross. So to be very clear, th this statement that the fullness of God dwells in something, that's not true of anything at all except Jesus. Even you think about the ark, the tabernacle, the temple, is that the absolute fullness of God? Or is that God inhabiting to a degree while still remaining in heaven, his throne inhabiting either the tabernacle or the Ark of the Covenant or, you know, fill in a, um, uh, what's it called? <coughs> like partially coming upon people in the Old Testament, like um, when the Spirit, you know, empowers people for a season or for a, a specific task. That, that's different than the fullness of God dwelling in. Now... New Testament wise, when we have the Spirit of God dwell in us, Ephesians does say that he, uh, not Ephesians, but somewhere it says he gives the Spirit without measure. And, and we're actually called, as the body, we're called the fullness of Christ. That when he gives us his Spirit, it is the, the fullness of his very Spirit and presence. Which is crazy, man. But this idea of the fullness of God dwelling in a being uh, as to be that being is different than us being filled with the presence. Think of us as a vessel. Jesus is actually like the nature and the substance of what's being filled, what's filling him. So um, the fullness of God is not like Jesus is like a, a, a cup and, and God's filling him with his fullness. This is, no, the fullness of God, the nature of God just adds flesh to himself.
that's different than us being filled with the Spirit. Because Jesus is the absolute, 100% perfect embodiment of God. That's what Paul and other biblical authors want you to see, man. In verse 9, it says, In Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you've been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So, Jesus is the Him here. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This, this idea of dwelling is so important because Jesus in Isaiah 9:6, he's God with us, Emmanuel, come down into our world, put on flesh. He really is the fullness of God. Reason number 11, and this is interesting. Um, in Romans chapter 9, 4 through 5, Jesus is referred to as God over all. No, he's not. Yes, he is. Romans 9. Paul talking about what the Israelites had uniquely as that chosen nation. They're Israelites. He's going, I want them to be saved. I would do whatever I can for them not to be cut off. They're Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship. Not them being worshipped, but them having the ability to properly worship God through the sacrificial system and offerings and gifts. The promises to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Now watch. Who is God over all, blessed forever? God is often referred to as the eternally or the only true blessed one. He'll be referred to as the blessed. Um... Trying to think where. Can't remember. But nonetheless, don't, don't pay too much attention to this. He is blessed forever, for sure. But the Christ, the anointed Messiah, who actually comes to pay, he's God overall. Good luck getting around that. Now you have fun with that, because that's it's not going to happen. <laughs> Reason number 12, Jesus is referred to as our great God and Savior in Titus chapter 2, 11 through 13. It says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce, turn away from ungodliness. Uh, worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. Here's what it means to live godly lives. You're waiting for the blessed hope. Who is the blessed hope? Well, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Bingo, bango, bungo. God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is he Savior? Absolutely. Is he God? Absolutely. Is he going to appear in glory? Absolutely. Is he our blessed hope? Absolutely. And just to be clear, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all that ungodliness. So Jesus is referred to as God and Savior. Paul's not separating these, the, the persons to say God as one individual and Jesus as another. Some would argue that. Well, in the Greek, if you actually read that uh, too. He calls Jesus God. We know this because in Luke 20, 37, go read that, Revelation 1, 6, the same kind of grammatical construction is used of God. This is not noting two different individuals, but two different titles for the same person. For instance, 
here's the other thing you got to know. Paul always uses the word um, manifestation, revelation, appearing consistently throughout his letters to the second coming of Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2.8, 1 Timothy 6.14, 2 Timothy 1.10, 2 Timothy 4.1, and 2 Timothy 4.8 all have um, uh, the appearing, the revelation, the manifestation, that word is used of Jesus. Titus 1, 3 through 4, um, same idea. At the proper time, he's talking about, uh, this is chapter 1, right? Paul, a servant of God, introducing himself, uh, an apostle of Jesus for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Genesis 3, at the proper time he manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Uh, this is same letter, just the second chapter. He refers to Jesus as Savior and God. So if you go back to chapter 1, God and Jesus are both said to be the exclusive Savior. If they were separate beings, Paul would say they were the Paul would say they were one of the saviors, but they're not. Titus 2:10 says God is our Savior. Uh, right here. God is our Savior. God our Savior. In fact, in the Old Testament, you'll see Isaiah 43:11. Let me actually go there real quick. Isaiah 43, 11, just so everyone's on the same page. He says, I am the Lord. Besides me, there's no Savior. Is that true? Yeah, 100%. 100%. With that in mind, there's no way to get around that. There's no way to disprove that or make that untrue. There's only one Savior. So when we have God being our Savior, and then two, sent, two verses later, uh, Jesus is the Savior, right? And in the same chapter of or uh, Titus 1, 3 and 4, makes God our Savior again. You have to wonder what's happening. Titus 2.10 says God is our Savior, and 2.13 combines the two to make it crystal clear. So if we go down to chapter 2, verse 10, God's our Savior. 2.13, God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's supposed to be crystal clear um, that... Uh, when both God and Jesus are called Savior, yet only one can exclusively be the Savior, not two, you're supposed to see Jesus as God. In fact, in Jude 1.25, and Jesus is referred to as Savior quite a bit. Um, Jude 1.25, it says, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, now you can say, well, Jesus is being credited with the salvation that God the Father rightly uh, accomplished through the Son. So in that sense, God the Father is the source of the salvation, the ultimate Savior, but Jesus gets to be that saving arm as the Savior. The, the point still stands that God alone is Savior. Yet in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to over and over as Savior. You're supposed to see the two coming together, just like the angel of God's presence in the Old Testament, kind of being blurred with God himself. You're supposed to see that same thing happening. Um, and, and they are still distinct. This is where people get weird and they want to make Jesus the Father and the Father Jesus. That, I don't see that. 
I have no reason to think that. And any verse that I've seen is, if you read in context, very easy to disprove. Um, but there you go. Reason number 13. Jesus is the eternal life. Jesus is the eternal life. Um, I made note of something. I want to make sure I get it. Yes. <laughs> Delete the at. Jesus is the eternal life. Okay. Is it, when you see it, man. I don't know how. I don't know how you're getting around it. I really don't. It just makes no sense. Nope. Okay. I'll take you to Acts 3.15. Let me bold that so I remember. Do it on me 30. Okay. Let me actually do this real quick. Mm -hmm. Dirt. No, let's go to Deuteronomy 30. Now, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> Stay in 1 John. Okay, 1 John 5.20. Sorry. I'm having a battle with myself. This is what it says. Okay. We know the Son of God has come and he's given us understanding. That's what Jesus has done. So that we may know him who is true. And we, we are in him who is true. Who's the one who is true? Well, his son is Jesus Christ. So we're talking about God here. Him who is true, God, God of Israel. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and the eternal life. You know, well, he's talking about God, duh, not the son. Are you sure? I'll put money on it. I'll take you up on the offer. He's the true God. And he's the eternal life. I want you to see something real quick. John makes it clear that God is the eternal life. It's a, it's a, it's a, a title for God. Now watch who he calls the eternal life in the very first chapter of this same letter. You're supposed to see it come full circle. Before I do, take you back to John, 1 John 1. Let's go all the way back to Deuteronomy. I call heaven and earth as witness against you today. Moses is given the blessing and the curse. You obey God's law, you're blessed. You don't, you're cursed. That's why Jesus is cursed on the tree. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life. Think tree of life and death, tree of death, forbidden tree of knowledge of good and evil. Think, think like that. Think about Jesus' tree, his death becoming our life and that reversal that takes place. We took, it resulted of death, cut off from life. Jesus brings us life through his tree of death. Now we have access to him being the tree of life. Moses is going, look, life or death, obey the law or don't. Blessing and curse, choose life. He's given them the, you know, the old cheat code. Like, here's, here's the answer. Choose life. It's, it's not a contest. I'm telling you the answer. Choose life. That you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. He is your life. Notice the law is not their life. For those that hold very tightly to the law as if to be their life, you're not supposed to see the law as being their life, but the law as pointing them to the one who is their life. So when Jesus comes, he does fulfill the law for sure. He does walk in the fullness of the law and, and all of that is fulfilled in him for sure. 
But the reason that matters is because he is the life that is offered to us. So notice how God is the life of his people. Okay. I share that with you because when I bring you back to 1 John 5, John is picking up on that going, yeah, God is our life. He's the true God and eternal life. You don't have multiple eternal lives. You see what I'm saying? There's one who is exclusively our eternal life. You don't have two, two people who are like, I'm your eternal life. No, I'm your eternal life. You're both right. You know, one is exclusively our eternal life. You can't have both. What's about to happen though, is it's about to seem like there are two who are our eternal life. And while they are the same being, same nature, same essence, same heart, same purpose, same character, same name, same, same love, same harmony, all that, it, Jesus is still distinct from the Father. Now watch, that which we've heard from the beginning, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, we've seen with our eyes, we've looked upon and touched the word of life. How do you touch an abstract concept called the word of life? Well, you're able to interact with him, hear him, talk with him, walk with him, if he's a concrete person. The life was made manifest. We've seen it. We testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. Now this is about to sound a lot like John's gospel. John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We already know that the life of God is God himself. He is the eternal life. He is the life of his people. But this eternal life John is actually talking about was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And you know who he's talking about? It's right here. The life, the word of life, the eternal life is the Son, Jesus Christ. So John is interacted with eternal life. We know that. This eternal life was with God. Um, and this is, again, just like John chapter 1, where we see the Word was with God and the Word was God, Jesus. John makes an effort to say that we're in the Father, in His Son, Jesus, not and in His Son as if to be separate, but just like Jesus says, you're in, I'm in, my, uh, you're in my Father's hand, you're in my hand. It's, it's, it's one and the same. But also distinct. They are two different hands, but they are still the, like together, together. So togetherness versus the sameness, I guess. I don't know. I need to flesh that out. Uh, after bringing the son and the father together as one, John says, this is the true God. And he doesn't specify or assign either the father or the son as that God, but he wants us to see both as the true God and the true eternal life because Jesus and the Father are described as eternal life in John's letter. Now, that might be a bit of a stretch for some of you, but uh, can we all agree that the life that was manifest from the Father is the word of life, the eternal life he's talking about is the Son right here? Because he's not talking about the Father, he's talking about the life offered from the Father, the eternal word emanating from the Father being Jesus, and this word offers life. That's why Jesus, to be the life, has to be the word of God as well, because it's the word of God that offers life. And that's why when you go to the end of this letter, he's the true God and eternal life. I think he's referring to the son mainly. 
not to the neglect of the father, but to highlight the son's part in being the life of his people um, with the father's confirming hand over it. Uh, Acts chapter 3, verse 15. Um, this is what Peter goes off, man. He needs to eat lunch because he sounds hangry here, but he's not. He says, you denied the holy and righteous one. He's preaching to the, the Jews. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. So notice this author of life is distinct from God. In fact, God raised the author of life from the dead, but he's, he is still the author of life. The originator of life, the beginning point of life, that's who Jesus is referred to as. When you go back to Genesis and you see the tree of life, I really want you to start seeing like the tree of life as representative mainly. You can, you can materialize it all you want and try and solidify it in your mind and go, I gotta see the, but more than just trying to picture the tree, try and imagine what the tree represents. It's the life of God. And this life is, seems to be the author of life, the eternal life, the word of life is his son. Jesus is the eternal life. And if God is exclusively the eternal life of his people, then we have to say that Jesus is indeed God. Some people don't like that though. So let's go to reason number 14. Did you know that God actually shed blood? It's not possible. The divine cannot shed blood. That which is eternal and cannot cease to exist cannot die. Well, dying doesn't mean no longer existing. Okay. Adam and Eve died in the garden, didn't they? They didn't stop existing. Acts 20, 28. This is Paul talking to the Ephesian elders. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. How do you get around that? That God obtained or purchased the church, the bride, with his own blood. When did that happen? When did God bleed? How is God subjected to bleeding? How can the eternal, uh, infinite, all-powerful God subject himself to bleeding as, you know, one of his, you know, creatures in his world? Well, I think God, number one, can do whatever he wants within his own created world. Number two, we know how he did it, and it's through the Son. So, you might say, well, Jesus' blood technically belong to God because God owns all things. And so Jesus is, 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 is um, you know, rightly owned by God. So God will claim ownership over the blood. Yeah, but no, sorry, you're not getting, not getting that. Scripture talks about the lifeblood of the creature as being like the creature's own blood. Yes, God owns everything, but he's not going to like go, that's my blood. It's Abel's blood cries out from the ground. The, the blood of the unrighteous calls out from the ground. You know, this is different. This is God's own blood. This is really straightforward. You go, when did God bleed? On the cross? You go, no, he didn't. That was Jesus. I think you're starting to get it. 
This is really straightforward. God can subject himself to the terrible condition of, you know, human pain and even loss of temporary physical life and even, um, you know, bleeding. He can do that. And he has done that. He has done that. Reason number 15. uh, Did you know that Peter actually viewed Jesus as God? Did you know that Peter actually, Peter the Apostle, like my guy, he viewed Jesus as God. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Not only was he bowing down and worshiping it, you know, worshiping Jesus in Matthew 28, or in the boat when he calmed the storm, or right before he's about to ascend into heaven, but Simon Peter introduces himself. Hey, I'm a servant and apostle of Jesus. You know, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, 2 Corinthians will tell us we are the righteousness of God. But Jesus is the righteousness of God. He is our righteousness. He is righteousness itself. Right standing, uprightness, moral perfection, however you want to explain that. Righteousness is who Jesus is. That's why we have equal standing with every believer all across human history because we have the same inherited righteousness from our God and Savior, Jesus. You know, this is from our God, one person, and our Savior, second person, Jesus. Again, this goes back to the whole Titus, 2 Timothy conversation where God and Savior mesh together, there's only one exclusive being uh, who is Savior. It's an exclusive title, the Savior. God says in Isaiah 43, was it Isaiah 43, 11, that he alone is the Savior. No one else is Savior. And yet, Jesus is Savior. You're supposed to go, oh yeah, he's God and Savior. In 2 Peter 1, 2, and 3, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Watch. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. His divine power. We talked about how Jesus is the power of God, the arm of God. So I want you to see here the righteousness of of our God and Savior, Jesus. Two titles for the same person. And yet, um, right here, it's as if Peter will also distinguish between, um, the best way I can explain it is the Father and the Son. The visible presence of God and the invisible presence of God. Um, How some would say the first person and the second person in the divine Godhead. But Peter does um, view Jesus as God. Especially because he worships, prays, writes about it like that. Uh, Jesus actually doesn't reject being called God in... It's actually, let's pause. We're halfway there. We're going to be done very soon because these are going to go by faster. And uh, in the meantime, I need water.
and I need to go potty. Potty break. If you've not already done this, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free resources that are made available to anyone around the world, completely free and accessible to anyone who wants to learn how to read the Bible. We have free online Bible study courses that will teach you how to read the Bible. We have free study devotionals that walk you through specific patterns and keywords in the book of Ephesians. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have Bible study workshops. We have all this free content because of generous supporters like you guys. And if you want to support this ministry, we're teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And there are a bunch of ways to donate. You can go to AboveReproachMinistry.com slash donate. You can give through debit or credit card. You can send a check to P.O. Box 338 uh, Green Cove Springs. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon. And then you can also get some church merch. If you've not already grabbed some church merch, I would recommend you do that so you can represent Jesus on your body. And all the proceeds go right back into this content so that we can reach more people and equip people to, you know, live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you didn't know this, I actually have a book. I've published a book. It's called Fruitful. And the point of this book is to be a resource to the church to teach people um, the essential keys for the most abundant Christian life this side of heaven. And so in this book, what I do is I, I outline the gospel absolutely clearly clearly, so you can actually know what the foundational truth is. And then from there, we discover what our purpose is, what our process is, and what our position is now in Christ. So if you are a new believer, or if you're a believer that really wants to understand what I believe are the essential key truths that a lot of people don't understand in the church, I would grab a copy. And if you haven't already joined our online church, get in that online church. We have a lot of cool stuff happening, events every single day, pretty much. Uh, we're in there praying and fellowshipping and gathering and growing together as a community. And the last thing is this. If you haven't already checked out our podcast, uh, we have podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and everywhere else where you can get a podcast. And pretty much all the content on YouTube, the live streams, what we do is we um, make that into podcast format so you guys can just listen on the go. So go check that out if you have not already. And let's get back to the video. Okay. Reason number 16. Jesus actually doesn't reject being called God. Uh, Thomas doesn't believe Jesus has resurrected. Okay. So he goes, unless I put my hands and uh, touch right here. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Jesus accommodates him. What a kind fella. He goes, peace be with you. And he looks at Thomas. Thomas is like, shoot. Hey, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Don't disbelieve. Thomas, believe. Believe what? Specifically that he resurrected, but also watch. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What Jesus um, affirms is that Thomas's beliefs are correct, that he is indeed his Lord and God. You can know this is just resurrection. Well, why didn't Jesus correct this? And go, I'm not your God. What are you talking about? Jesus affirms, you believe this because you see me? I think Jesus is affirming what we need to believe about him, that he really is our God. Now, 
again, this is where people get all wonky donkey with their theology and go, well, Jesus is the Father, and the Father is the Son. No, he says, if you see the Father, you, if you see me, you see the Father, okay, because he bears his name. He's the perfect image. He's the, um, what's it called, Hebrews. He has the exact imprint of his nature, but he is distinct from him, okay? Hebrews chapter 1, we already read this, okay, but I want to go back and look at it a little more. Reason number 17, God the Father actually calls the Son God. He says, your throne, O God, and this is all the way back in Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Interesting. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. How is the Son God? Yet God the Father will look at the Son and go, yeah, but your God has anointed you hierarchy in gods. No, we're not polytheists, but he is admitting your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This anointing, this exaltation is to make Jesus uh, the first resurrected human um, who represents humanity, who upholds a new covenant, whose sacrifice has been received in honor and glory. And he's appointed to be the mediator, the new high priest, all this different stuff. The anointing language is to play a certain role. The oil of gladness. So he says, you, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. Who is he talking to? He's still talking to the sun. It says, of the sun. He says, boom, boom, boom. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. Jesus does say, my Words will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words won't. Him being the word of God also makes him remain and outlast what he's going to roll up like a garment. Heaven and earth are going to wear out. He's going to roll them up like a garment. He's going to change them. But he's the same and he does not end. The Greek word for theos used here of God for people that like to make the argument, in this context is not referring to some general divine being or angel. I've heard someone say that. In this passage specifically, it's being used of the one true living God, not just a God. Even if that was the case, God the Father is looking at the Son going, you're a God. Really, now we're polytheists? Chapter 1 is arguing, of Hebrews 1, that Jesus is better. Right? So, so, so the Greek word for God, however you want to whatever you want to do with it, it doesn't change what's being said. Um, some would say that uh, your throne, O God, is, well, you know, God is the source of Jesus' rule. Um, because, you know, that could be said of any spiritual being that's sent to be uh, an ambassador of God. God is the source of the rule. He's actually saying that this son has a throne and a kingdom as being God himself. And the father, God who is speaking here, is like affirming that. I'm going, yeah, that's right. In fact, reason number 18, that Jesus in scripture is God in the flesh is because Jesus actually has a shared throne and dominion with God the father. This is fundamentally different than Adam and Eve ruling um, under 
the authority of God over the earth. This is different. Yes, we will sit with Jesus. Yes, we will judge angels with Jesus. Yes, we will have a degree of authority and judgment alongside him reigning over the earth. But here Jesus is actually sitting on the throne of his father. Um, Revelation 22.1, it says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life. Bride is crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So the throne that he sees life emanating from is not the throne of, of, of God and then Jesus is on like a little tiny to toddler throne. He's not on his own little baby throne going, man, dad, this is amazing. They're the same shared throne and dominion, noting authority, noting power, noting the father exalting his son to that status as the first resurrected human, yet always having that status as God. This is... Um, this blows, I guess, my categories out of the water. Spend a whole lifetime meditating on this. Spend a whole lifetime meditating on this. And we will not fully grasp the beauty of this. Um, did you know that Jesus has a shared glory with his Father? Um, that's reason number 19. I, glory refers to the weight, the weightiness, the significance of something. Um, the majesty, the renown, the honor and reverence due someone. Isaiah 42, 8, this is what God says. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Does it sound like God shares his glory, his renown, his rightful worship and praise with anyone? No. He does not. And that's still factually true when Jesus says this in John 17, 5. He prays, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So this is not Jesus ascending to some level of glory he didn't already have. When Jesus leaves his glory, puts on human flesh, comes into our world, he's not ascending to a higher rank. He's obtaining a new status for humanity that we lack. We don't have the rightful ability or authority to approach the Father. We have no right to his kingdom. Jesus gives us that citizenship, gives us that privilege, gives us that status by attaining it for us as the first resurrected human. But notice the glory he's referring to is the glory he's had with the Father before the world existed. Meaning, as the uncreated, timeless God that he is, alongside the Father, there's a shared glory. There's a shared worship and praise and renown and reputation and name. That is, you can't share uh, something with yourself. So when, again, when people get weird, like, well, the Father is the Son. So he's like, he's, he's, he's playing around with us? He's just... He's not really sharing glory with himself. He's going, oh, it's me. Oh, now I'm the son. Now I'm the father. I don't understand that. Clearly, they're different, distinct persons. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how to get around that. They're clearly distinct. Yet, the, the unity is so tight. It's as if, uh, well, Jesus says, when you see me, you see the father. They are one 
being, the, the oneness of their name, the oneness of their character and heart and love and harmony and, and purpose is, is uh, something that we can't understand. It's so tightly connected. So Jesus does have glory with the Father. Why would the Father share glory with someone when he said he doesn't do that? Hmm. Interesting, right? But again, this is not him sharing glory with himself and going, oh, yes, let me share with you. Oh, thanks, God. Oh, thanks, God. Yeah, you're so kind. This is the son going, wow, we have shared glory. Father's going, yes, beautiful. Love requires another individual. And so the father and the son coexisting in perfect harmony and love, and this is what it is. This is Jesus being communicated as God, eternally existent, having no beginning. Um, in fact, reason number 20, Jesus is worshipped alongside the Father. It's one thing for the Father to be like, hey, worship the Son, but make sure you worship me. It's another thing for the Son in the presence of the Father to be worshipped with the Father. So Revelation 5, 12-13, it says, uh, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. So we have myriads of thousands and thousands of angels. What are they saying? They're saying, worthy is the lamb, is the son who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And he goes, I heard every, every creature, every creature, which already places the lamb or Jesus outside of the category of creature. He's not. It's not a created being. Here at every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, what a, what a sight this would be for John. A glorious orchestra. In the sea, all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing, be honor, be glory and might forever and ever. The Son, the Lamb here, is receiving worship with the Father. You think the Father would share his worship and praise and his glory with anyone um, other than someone who is divine? Just saying. Reason number 21. Jesus, and we miss this, man, because we just don't understand the sacrificial system, we don't understand the law, we don't understand Hebrew culture, but let me help you. In Matthew chapter 9, you're going to see Jesus forgives sin. And you're going, so what? The Father has given him authority to forgive sin. No, you don't understand. Jesus is going to forgive sin the way that only God can. He's making a statement. So, we have a paralytic brought to Jesus to be healed by his friends. They're carrying him. And uh, he looks at the kid and goes, hey... Your sins are forgiven. Well, number one, Rabbi, we didn't bring him here for his sins to be forgiven. We came here for a healing. Uh, it's like going to a restaurant and they, they say, hey, uh, I don't know, something that has nothing to do with the restaurant. Enjoy yourself. I didn't come here for that. I came to eat. Some of the scribes and Pharisees go, this man is blaspheming. Why is that blasphemy? Because he's bypassing the the system by which God has ordained for sin to be forgiven because he's, I don't know, uh, because blasphemy is to uh, speak against specifically the name of the God of Israel. So this man is blaspheming by saying your sins are forgiven. 
maybe in their minds he's undermining, belittling, not just the sacrificial system God instituted, but God's authority himself. Either way, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, which we'll get to that later, why do you think evil in your hearts? Listen, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? That doesn't require much evidence. Or to say, rise and walk. Now that's going to require evidence. So, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And people always like to go this, well, on earth. Well, where else does sin need to be forgiven, bro? Sin has been confined to uh, humanity on earth. We're sinners on the earth. Where else is sin going to be committed? Spiritual beings don't have a sacrifice. Spiritual beings like, uh, you know, the fallen angels who have committed rebellion and rejected God, they don't have an opportunity to be saved. Jesus didn't come to save angels. He came to fallen angels. He came to save humanity. Um, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. He said, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now listen, Jesus doesn't say, I forgive you. Like, when someone offends me, I can say, hey, I forgive you. If they're not a believer, I can, I can choose to forgive them and not hold their sin against them. But I cannot say God forgives them. I can't, I don't have that authority to say, God, forgive them. I, I can ask and say, Lord, would you just please bring them to a place where they're desperate for you and they believe and, and their sins can be forgiven. I, I don't get to tell God, hey, for, make them forgiven. I can just deal with personal offense, okay? Jesus doesn't say, I forgive you. He says, you are forgiven as if to be in the sight of God, forgiven. So Jesus describes his condition as being forgiven. Do you see it? Jesus is not saying, hey buddy, you wronged, you wronged me, you offended me, I was really bothered, I, I forgive you. He's going, you are forgiven. High priests could extend forgiveness for um, unintentional sins through the temple sacrificial system. But it was only unintentional that could be dealt with through the sacrificial system. Jesus bypasses that. Not to belittle the sacrificial system, but to make his name very clearly known. So, um, in other words, when he bypasses the sacrificial system to be the means of forgiveness and to be the one who declares and extends forgiveness apart from the animal sacrifice, um, he is indeed claiming to be God. Only God can do this. Um, high priests can extend forgiveness on behalf of God through the ordained sacrificial system if it's for unintentional sins. Jesus, we don't know if this is intentional, unintentional, just you are forgiven. You are forgiven. And only God can do this as he did for Abraham, as he did for David. Blessed are those whose sins are forgiven by God or others who are made righteous by faith. Jesus, by, in other words, it's as if uh, someone goes, hey, Here's your college degree, and you didn't go through the established system. You didn't go get the education. You didn't sign up for classes. You did. Just someone comes along and says, "Hey, here's your college degree. You go. This is unofficial." What if they actually had the authority to, to to give you that though, and to declare you as having that degree, even though you didn't go through the education? That's kind of what's happening here. That's that's the picture. That's the best picture I can paint. Is that Jesus is giving the kind of forgiveness that you couldn't even obtain through the ordained sacrificial system. He's given it. Just, just out there. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're, yeah, John chapter uh, 8. Um, the woman who was found in adultery. 
I forgive you. I forgive you. Go and sin no more. This is something that no other um, being has the authority and power to do. There's an established system to come and get forgiveness. And even then, it's for unintentional sin. Okay? But Jesus, making a statement of himself, that's why they say you're blaspheming. You and I are so disconnected from this, so far removed from this culture, we go, blasphemy, what? Ah, they're probably just thinking he's nuts. No, they're, they're accusing him of coming against the name of the God of Israel, when in fact, he's the embodiment of it. Reason number two, Jesus is bowed to in the way God is in the Old Testament. Uh, we've already touched on this, in, what was it, two episodes ago? But Isaiah 45, 3, this is what the Lord says. Um, this is not it. Awkward. Very awkward. Forty-five twenty-three, Mabi, Mabi, forty-five twenty-three. This is God saying, "Look, I am God. There's no other." John's Gospel kind of over, kind of a, adds a dimension of complexity to that, doesn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yet there's no other God. Again, not polytheism. Just trying to be as honest and biblical as we can. So this God, who is the only, says, by myself I've sworn. And I love this, by myself I've sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. Watch what he says. To me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Go to Philippians 2. It says, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In Just so we're clear, in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, and every tongue, just like it says in Isaiah 45, three, uh, 23, every tongue will swear allegiance. Every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Paul sees Jesus as the one who fits that uh, statement of Isaiah 45, 23. When God said, actually, this is exclusively about me, Paul's not contradicting that. Jesus doesn't contradict that. This is uh, clarifying what that really means as God's saying, I'm the only true living God. And my son is the one who every knee will bow to, every tongue will swear allegiance. Um, in Joel chapter 2, Verse 30 and 32, it says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right here. It shall come to pass, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, there's no category for the Jewish carpenter from Nazareth yet. This is Joel, before Jesus comes into the world. But Romans 10, we have Paul saying in verse 12, There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
will be saved. And this is specifically calling on Jesus. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So this is people calling on the name of Jesus to be saved. Joel chapter 2, saying the God of Israel. It's, we have a clearer picture now of what that means. Um, let me... Hmm. I'm going to skip that one for now. Reason number 24. Um, yeah, well, no, reason number 23. I can't count. Is that Jesus claimed to be the I am. The divine name of God. How he revealed himself to Moses. Remember Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Let me put it on the screen for you. Moses goes, hey, what, what's your name? So I could tell the Israelites. God says, eh, I am who I am. Yeah, but it's not really helpful. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The Lord. Why is Jesus referred to as the Lord so much? I am has sent you. This is how God reveals himself. This is his name. The Lord, I am that I am. In John chapter 8, 56 through 59, <laughs> we have Jesus making, just clowning these Pharisees with love. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews said, you're not even 50. You've seen Abraham, what a knucklehead. And Jesus goes, well, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Uh-oh. Oh, invoking the divine name upon yourself, blasphemy. Why did they pick up stones to throw at him? Because they see him as blaspheming, uh, claiming to be the divine name, and they know that is worthy of being stoned. Problem is, he actually is what he's claiming to be. So it's not false, it's not wrong. They just don't see him. He claims to be the self-existent, eternally existent God. You, you have to ask yourself, why did the Jews want to kill Jesus so often? You go, well, jealousy, envy, pride, love of money, sure. That's, but their you know, theological reasoning was he's claiming to be God. He's committing blasphemy. They would find an excuse. We can throw stones if he, we can push him off a cliff if he, we can hang him on a tree if he, and he does claim to be God over and over and over. In fact, Mark chapter 14, um, Jesus is on trial um, and they're asking him, who, who are you? What are these charges they're bringing against you? He's silent. And the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Remember I said God is referred to as the blessed? There's, we found our verse. Here we are. And Jesus said, I am. Whoa. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? They condemned him as deserving death. Did he actually deserve death? No. But they thought his confession 
that I'm the one in Daniel's vision approaching the Ancient of Days, coming on the clouds. I am invoking the divine name like he did in John 8, which essentially he's saying, I, I existed before Abraham, guys. You don't get it. He's saying the same thing here. I am. And why do they, you know, see him as deserving death? Because of what he's saying about himself. Uh, we already looked at when Jesus says, I am he. Over and over, John 4, 25, John 8, 24, John 18, 6. And Isaiah 43, 10, God says exclusively, I am he. We already looked at that, so I don't need to bring that up again. But you can see that Jesus does claim the I am divine name for himself. And he's not wrong. We just miss it. Reason number 24, con continuing on this line of I am, um, he makes I am statements of himself. So there are times where Jesus explicitly says I am, or before Abraham was I am, or I am he. I am he, I am the one. But there's also times where Jesus directly connects himself to the Old Testament revelation of God. So in Exodus 3.14, we see that I am is undoubtedly understood as the name of God. Whenever Jesus makes an I am statement, he's identifying himself as God. Um, but I'm gonna show you that in specific ways, he actually identifies himself as being God um, to be what only God revealed himself to be in the Old Testament. Meaning, sometimes God will say, I am uh, the life, I am uh, light, I am, um, I don't know, fill in the blank. Um, so these Old Testament pictures of God, Jesus goes, it's me. Especially in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes all kinds of I am statements, which is another way of him claiming the divine name. He's, ident he's identifying himself as God. Um, in the Old Testament, we see certain titles that only God can claim rightfully. They're exclusive to him because God alone can be these things to his people. He alone is the one who nourishes them. He's the bread of life to them. He's the, the water that comes out of the rock to them. He's the one who you know, cares for them and shepherds them. So you're going to see, uh, for instance, in John 6, 35. I'm not going to turn to these. I'm going to let you go here, okay? But Jesus claims to be the bread of life. Uh, John 6, 35, John 6, 41, John 6, 48, and John 6, 51. He says, I'm the bread of life. Let me explain what he's saying. He is saying that he is what the God of Israel always was for his people. In Exodus, when God rains down manna from heaven, um, God is satisfying the hunger of his people as the one who, you know, uh, meets their needs. Uh, Jesus satisfies, fulfills, and removes any hunger once and for all in the human soul. This is something that only God does. Or Jesus will say, I'm the light of the world, John 8, 12, John 9, 5. He is saying that he is what the Lord was to his people, giving them light and direction, right? The pillar of fire at night, guiding them. The word of God is a lamp unto my feet. God is a light to his people, um, Jesus is that to our souls. He gives light to our souls, direction, clarity, sight. This is what only the Lord God does. In John 10, 7 and 10, 9, Jesus says, I'm the door. He's making himself the only entrance into the sheepfold of God's kingdom. In other words, he's the one who gives access. He unlocks, he opens doors, he's the way in. And, and by the way, this is something only God has the authority to grant. Only God has the ability to give the access and entrance into his kingdom to. 
And yet Jesus is saying on that, uh, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd in John 10, 11 and 10, 14. He's making himself what God has always been to his people, right? David refers to uh, the Lord is my shepherd in Psalm 23. And so Jesus is saying, I am who David was talking about in Psalm 23. This is something only the Lord was to his people. Um, he'll also say, I'm the resurrection and the life in John 11, 25, 1 John 1, 2. Uh, Jesus is what only God is, the source of both physical and eternal life. The one who has the power to grant life, um, you know, holds the power of life in himself. This is what only God has, and yet Jesus has it and is it. Um, or Jesus will say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And all these statements, I am. He says, I am. He's claiming the divine name. He's claiming to be what only God can be, the one who grants access and entrance into the kingdom of heaven, um, the essence of truth itself, Psalm 119, verse 60. He's claiming to be what God claims his word is, truth. And God is the truth of his people, the life of his people, the way into his kingdom is, is, is by the Lord, granted by God. And Jesus is going, yep, nailed it. That's me. A lot of people miss this, but reason number 25 uh, if you read the parables of Jesus, um, he actually assumes the role that God rightly possesses in the Old Testament. So, for instance, in the parable of the bridegroom, uh, Jesus makes himself the bridegroom, whereas God has always been, you know, that bridegroom to the bride of Israel. Or Jesus will make himself out to be the rock in, um, in his parables. Or Peter will talk about how, he, not Peter, Paul will talk about in 1 Corinthians 10, Jesus was the rock. Um, and God is the rock that his people stand on. Um, or Jesus will make himself to be the Lord of the harvest. Um, he'll make himself out to be the good shepherd. Um, or the, the parable of the, the farmer and the seed. He'll make himself out to be the one who sows good seed. Whereas in the Old Testament, God makes himself out to be the one who plants seeds. And um, Israel sprouted up and some of them bore bad fruit. So... Um, or in the vineyard owner parable, Jesus will make himself out to be the one who is, who is um, a really the rightful entrusted heir to the vineyard. Um, the one who essentially has authority over it and owns it. And then they murder him. Um, or the master and the owner of the house who judges the servants. In the Old Testament, Moses is you know, a servant in the house of God. Elijah is a servant in the house of God. And yet Jesus in his parables will make himself to be the master and the owner. It's subtle. It's subtle. Um, or the one who receives the children's praise. So all the go read the parables of Jesus and, and notice who he makes himself to be in that parable. And then go and explore the Old Testament and how um, people often you know, see that. Um, Martez, thank you for that. I just saw that gift. Holy moly. Thank you guys for your support. That is... A huge blessing. You have no idea how far that goes. Thank you, thank you. Um, that's what keeps this going, and God supplies, you know, through His people. So thank you for doing that. Um, reason number twenty-six. We're five away, five away from being done. Um, Jesus will make statements, uh, combining Himself with the Father. John fourteen eleven. He says, "Believe that I am in the Father." And the Father is in me. Does that sound like the Father is Jesus? No. Does it sound like Jesus is the Father? No. It actually sounds a lot like he's saying, look, believe me, I'm in the Father. How can you be in yourself? 
if Jesus is in fact the Father, if you, I don't know what you call that, oneness theology, a lot of people who hold to this will say, we're not modalist, we're not oneness Pentecostals either. I'm like, what are you then? Like, you're saying Jesus is the Father when he says I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me. Just like oxygen is in me and I'm in oxygen, right? Oxygen is immersed, or I'm immersed in oxygen, it's inside me, it's the same idea. He talks about how the, he's in the Father's hand and we're in his hand and both hands. It's, so Jesus is not the Father, but he is so closely connected and tied to the Father, he'll say statements like, I and the Father are one. Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord our God, the Lord, he is one. Compound unity, right? You have Adam and Eve uh, becoming one. Um, what is it? Uh, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be hold to his wife. The two will become one where the body is one, the body of Christ, but many members. Now, Jesus will say in John uh, 14 that if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And so there's all those different statements he makes. Um, reason number 27, Jesus actually claimed to be God, like very clearly. Typically, um, Muslims will say, show me in your Bible where Jesus, this is the dumbest thing, but they'll say, tell me where Jesus says, I am God, bow down and worship me. They've decided the conditions for God to meet to show himself as God. Instead of following the trail of breadcrumbs and letting God reveal himself how he wants, they decide if God is truly, if Jesus is God, then he will do this or he will say this. <laughs> you ain't God, buddy. You don't get to decide the way he reveals himself. But I'll tell you, he makes some pretty clear statements. John 5.18, it says the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father. Making himself equal with God. Common pushback I've heard is, well, the Jews are mistaken. They're wrong a lot, right? And I go, yeah. And they go, well, when they're saying he's breaking the Sabbath, is he breaking the Sabbath? And I go, no. Okay. So if he's not breaking the Sabbath, well, in their mind, he is. Like their understanding of what the Sabbath is, their human tradition that's been passed down, he's violating that, but he's not breaking the Sabbath command that got instituted. He's breaking the man-made tradition of what Sabbath is, is to be, which is actually not what God intended it to be. So in one sense, sure, Jesus is not breaking the Sabbath instituted by God. He's breaking the man's idea and tradition of what Sabbath is. Nonetheless, he, they go, well, so he can't be really calling God his own father. Here's my problem with that. If John, uh, as John's recording this, writing this together, you know, he would clarify, by the way, like the Jews mis mis made a mistake. Like he was not. Um, like right here, it's very evident that he's not breaking the Sabbath, right? It's very evident. So when John says, yeah, he's breaking the Sabbath, he's already clarified prior to this. He's not. In their minds he is, so that's why they're trying to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. John would have corrected this and said, just so you know, like I clarified about the Sabbath, that he wasn't breaking that in the above passage right here. 
Jesus was not making himself to be God. John had every opportunity to clarify this. He did not. So, were the Jews right in, their inter in understanding what Jesus was saying? I think so. Because John 10, 30 through 33, he'll say, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus said, look, I've shown you many good works from the Father. What are you going to stone me for? They said, it's not for a good work, for blasphemy. You being a man. You make yourself God. Okay, I'll give you John 5, 18 if you're like, well, I don't, I don't believe the Jews are understanding him. Well, they're understanding him here. And we have the conversation between Jesus and them. He could have corrected them. What? I'm not making myself God, you knuckleheads. What are you talking about? He goes, is it not written in your law? I said you are God's lowercase g. Right here, quoting uh, Psalm 82.6, which is a big old rabbit hole. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture can't be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world that you're blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God? So did Jesus uh, correct what they said or did he defend what he said? He defended what he said. I am the son of God. Let me prove to you why this is not a problem. Even in Psalm 82, God talks about how, and he'll go on to talk about how the rulers had the, you know, the word of God and um, you know, they were instituted to, to rule and have authority and, and all that. I think it goes deeper, uh, actual spiritual beings he's addressing. But the point here is he doesn't say, I didn't say I'm God. He's actually clarifying why that's acceptable for him to say. And he references Psalm 82, something that we would do well to learn how to do is when New Testament authors reference a scripture, don't just go back and read the passage, read the whole chapter, read that whole book to understand the context of what they're referencing. When Jesus references this, there's something else going on because it's going to reinforce the fact and prove the fact that him saying he's the son of God is not wrong. There's actually a category for that in the Old Testament. And Psalm 82 has to do with that. So that's number two. That's the second time they've tried to kill him for claiming to be God. Muslims don't want that. I don't know why. They want to think like a 2023 Muslim and they you know, project that onto the text and say, God has to. God doesn't have to do anything. Your father Abraham rejoiced he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Remember, Jesus says, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. The eternally existent same God who goes past Abraham and pre-exists Abraham. They pick up stones to stone him. Why are they trying to kill him again? Why are they trying to kill him again? Or in Mark 14, again, he claims to be the one riding on the clouds approaching the Ancient of Days. Essentially saying, I'm the one seated at the right hand of power, claiming to be God, and they go, let's kill him. And they finally, so look, I'm going to read a couple things from, I, I don't remember who I quoted this from. This is a while ago. I believe it's Michael Heiser's Unseen Realm, okay? But either way, this is from someone else. I think it's Michael Heiser. Um... He says, in an effort to make the point that the God of Israel deserved worship instead of Baal, Baal, the biblical writers occasionally use this, this description of Baal or Baal, however you say it, as the cloud rider, the one who rides the clouds, right? 
Instead, in Daniel's vision, Daniel 7.13, we see the Son of Man riding the clouds. So, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 33.26, passages like Deuteronomy 33.26 has God riding through the heavens, riding the clouds. Psalm 68.32-33 has God riding the clouds in the heavens. Psalm 104.1-4, Isaiah 9.1, they're making... They're, they're pushing back against Baal and his fake religion and his fake existence. And they're going, actually, we know the real cloud rider. They're using the categories of their culture to make a statement about their God, right? The Israelites are doing, biblical authors are doing this. So to be the cloud rider by nature and by title is to be given divine status as God. God rides the clouds. Now, as angels are messengers of, of fire, you know, and they um, come dispatched by, by God, but God is the one actually riding the clouds as the one who does whatever he pleases in the heavens. That's unique to him. But in Daniel 7.13, we see the Son of Man. He actually receives the everlasting kingship from the Ancient of Days, and he's riding the clouds. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, this is what Daniel sees in a vision, there came one like a Son of Man. He came to the Ancient of Days and he was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting. It shall not pass away and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. So we have the Son of Man riding the clouds. It's clear from the text, the Ancient of Days, or the God of Israel, and the Son of Man, the human one, are different characters. Yet Daniel 7.13 describes someone who appeared human coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. And so standing on trial, what does Jesus reference for himself? When they're going, who are you? He says, I am the Son of the Blessed, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus claims to be the unique Son of Man who they will see coming on the clouds as the cloud rider. He's claiming to be the divine son of man in Daniel 7's vision, or in Daniel's vision. He's the unique divine human figure that approaches the ancient of days as being equal with God. And Michael Heiser will go on to say, in what seems like a cryptic answer to a very clear question, Jesus quotes Daniel 7 to answer Caiaphas. Caiaphas understood Jesus was claiming to be the second figure of Daniel 7.13, the second person in the Godhead, who's God yet alongside God, and that was blasphemy. Jesus' answer provides the high priest with the accusation he needs for a death sentence, and it gives us a clear picture of who Jesus really was. Um, and you can go to Psalm 104, verse 3, or Isaiah 19, verse 1, and you can see these passages, again, where only God is the one rightfully riding on the clouds as the one who does whatever he pleases in the heavens. Um, and in the final scene of human history, we're gonna see heaven opened, and there's gonna be a white horse. Can you guess? Just like Jesus ascended on a cloud to the Mount of Olives, Matthew 28, he was taken up in the clouds, and he goes, and then the angels look at uh, the apostles and go, why are you guys looking in the clouds? Jesus is gonna come back the same way he left. How? On the clouds? And here we see a picture of that. He's riding a white horse. 
He's called faithful and true in righteousness. He judges and makes war. And he's called the word of God. This is the one who comes on the clouds to absolutely destroy evil and finish what he started. So this is very clear in scripture. This is reason number 27. When Jesus claims the I am divine name of God and he slots himself, rightfully so, in that place where the divine cloud rider belongs, you're getting a picture, okay? In uh, reason number 28, we talked about this with the angel of God, but let me take you to Jude. In the Old Testament, the God of Israel is credited with the Exodus. He set Israel free. He broke down Pharaoh. He brought the waters toppling down onto the armies. And yet in Jude, he says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward, he destroyed those who did not believe. And we see this laid out in Numbers and Deuteronomy. Those who rebel and reject God and Moses' authority, they're swallowed up by the earth. A fire breaks out. The sword comes. There's punishment for them. And Jesus is the one who is said to save the people out of Egypt. And we explored this in, in depth the last episode. Let me get to number 29. Um, reason number 29, Israel disobeyed Jesus in the wilderness. And you go, no, they didn't. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 10. In fact, let me just take you to verse 9. Because we're running out of time and I don't want to take up too much more time. Um, he'll say the rock was Christ, the rock that followed them, the rock they drank from in the wilderness. Okay, verse 9, he says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. They were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble. They were destroyed by the destroyer. The point is, Jesus is the one whom they're coming against. And Paul's looking back. Psalm 106 verse 7 actually has uh, Israel coming against their God. They put God to the test. And it's not wrong. Uh, Jesus is actually said to be the rock here. The rock was Christ. This is why Isaiah 44 8, it's interesting. No, this always happens. Isaiah 44.8 says, Fear not, nor be afraid. Uh, is there a God besides me? There is no rock besides God. The Lord is unique. The God of Israel, the God of Abraham, he is unique. He's exclusively the only rock. Okay? In Matthew 16.18, we see Jesus talking about how the church will be built on this rock. It's Peter's confession about Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone whom the builders rejected. He's the stone. He's the rock. He's the foundation. He says, if you build your life on my words, you're building your life on the solid foundation of the rock. 1 Corinthians 10 makes him out to be the rock. Not Dwayne. Not Dwayne. The rock Johnson. The real rock. And yet Isaiah 44, 8 says there's no other rock besides the Lord. So let me end with this. This is the reason number 30. Actually, I want to be honest, in my thumbnail I said 30 plus, I thought I'd get to 30 plus, so let me get to at least 31. Reason number 30, Jesus actually possesses the titles that rightfully belong to God alone. And if you'd like the list of these things with their scriptures, I can send them to you, okay? 
or I'll tell you what, I'll just expand this for you so you can see it. Okay. Because I don't feel like <laughs> going through all of these. It would take so long. Okay. Right here. You should be able to see it. Jesus possesses these titles. The first and the last. Alpha and Omega, Isaiah 44, 6. The reason I start with Old Testament passages is because these are names rightly attributed only to the God of Israel. And yet, the New Testament passages attribute them to Jesus. King of kings and Lord of lords. Savior, our salvation. The judge of the living and the dead. Redeemer, the light. Again, the rock. The holy one. Mighty God. The Almighty, Lord of hosts, Lord of glory. These are titles that are used of God in the Old Testament, the God of Israel, and yet we see them attributed to Jesus, which you can't have an exclusive position given to more than two beings. So it makes sense that Jesus is in fact God in the flesh, just like scripture teaches. Uh, the last thing is this. This is like a little one, so I'll end with this. Um, God here is communicated as two individuals who are directing Paul's way to the people. So um, the Lord makes these people increase, as you're going to see in First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians three. So read this with me very carefully. Read this very carefully. May our God and Father himself, who? Our God and Father himself, and our Lord Jesus. We're talking about two different individuals? We are. Direct our way to you. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with you, with all his saints. So God here, the Father himself, and the Lord Jesus are doing the directing of Paul's way. Paul's going, I want to come to you guys. May God the Father and Jesus direct our way to you. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. So who is the Lord here? This is who the Lord God of Israel says his name is in the Old Testament. Exodus 3 says, my name, I am that I am, the Lord, the divine name. So he's referred to as the Lord. And yet we see the Lord here is actually Jesus, um, applied to Jesus. So I, this is the, where people get all hung up on like the, the semantics and the logistics and they go, well, am I praying to the Father? Am I praying to the Son? We've had this conversation on our Discord server, and I just think that whole, to be overly obsessive to that degree is just so unhelpful. Where you're like, well, we don't pray to Jesus, we pray to the Father. Bro, pray to Jesus, pray to the Father. 
if they both accept worship and praise, and the Father says, worship my son, and you see the early church praying to the son, you see people praying to Jesus in the scriptures, why would we not? If Jesus says, look, uh, if you pray in my name, I will answer, why would we not pray to him? So there's 31, I know this, this last one was like, meh. it's like a, half of a cherry on top, it's not much, but it is when you read the Old Testament, the Lord God, that's his, his, the God of Israel's name is the Lord. And this is applied to Jesus, not a general Lord in terms of like a general master or someone with authority and power. There's lots of Lords on the earth. This is the exclusive Lord making your way increase, establishing us before our God and Father. So you'll have God and Savior paired. You'll have God and Father paired. You'll have Jesus as God and life paired. All these different ways of that the biblical authors will show, reveal God to you in a way that blows your mind and leaves you in awe. And so my encouragement to you guys is to go and just meditate on these things. Think through these things. Um, really consider what it means that Jesus as the word of God is distinct from God, yet along, yet God himself. Think about in the Old Testament how the angel of God's presence, the presence of God is distinct from God, yet God himself. Think about how the life of God is God himself, yet distinct from God, right? All these different ways of explaining um, the same thing. So someone said, do you believe in, uh, so you believe Je God and Jesus are two separate persons. And I believe the Father and the Son are two different individuals. I don't believe they're the same exact person. I believe the oneness, the compound unity there, the best way to explain it is with um, uh, husband and wife, two becoming one, uh, the body of Christ, one but many members. Just as God being one, yet seems at least the Father and Son, um, and the Spirit seems to be uh, the best way I can explain it, as well as the, the presence, um, the life force. Um, there are many ways to look at that, but ah, my brain is exhausted. That's it for today. Wednesday, we have 30... If that was 31, if my math is correct, then we have like six. We have about 33 more reasons, like clearer reasons, even more clear reasons, why Jesus is you know, clearly communicated as God in the scriptures. And again, I don't believe he's the father. I don't believe that's what we're supposed to see. So don't get all weird on me, all right? And I think that is it, all right? I know this can be boring to people, but when you have a firm foundation of who you believe Christ is, um, everything can change. Everything can change. People think these things are irrelevant. Well, it's not going to change how I live. I don't know. Everyone's living out their theology. Every, your life is the direct result of what you think about God. So, if we can get a more accurate view of, of God and His Son, we'll live a more precise life um, rooted in his word all right that's all i have for you guys today join me wednesday we'll be back here join the online church if you haven't go to abovereproachministry.com i'm gonna go deal with my yelling kids love you all
keep moving towards Jesus, and I'll see you later.